Well, good morning, and it is great to see you. I echo what Pastor Steve says, that you are not afraid of the weather, and you made it a priority to come and worship the Lord. So I'm going to get you to do something. My wife and I this past year decided we've got to find some time to spend together. So uh, we've been trying to go to the gym three mornings a week together, and that means getting up at 10 after 5 in the morning, which for me is not a problem because I'm a morning person. But there's many days my wife confesses, I heard you hit the alarm and I just wished you hadn't moved because then she knew she wouldn't have to get up. So there's something I do at the end of our workout because as we head to the change room, I always say to her, good job, good job for coming. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to the person beside you and just say, good job for making it a priority to come to church this morning. Good job. Because we're supposed to encourage one another. The deacons here are saying two services, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Great job, gentlemen. Great job. But uh, that's what we're supposed to do is encourage one another. And I just thought this is a good opportunity to do that. Well, this morning we're going to talk on the topic of sharing the wealth. We are getting close to the end of our series that we started in January on becoming and trying to understand what it means to be a certain kind. And we've been looking at some key discipleship essentials over this year. And uh, we're getting close to wrapping up the series. And so the key discipleship essential that we're going to look at today is sharing the wealth. And I know most of us, when we think wealth, we immediately think finances. But what we're actually going to talk about this morning is more important than finances. We're going to share together what it means to share the wealth, the riches of the gospel that we have received with one another and with those outside of our congregation. Because it is our responsibility. So let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here Now, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would teach us, I pray that you would feed us, and I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that we will be pricked in our hearts to recognize how important it is. It is our responsibility to share the wealth. So help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. This week, I was reminded of a troubling trend while I was reading an article written by a man named Tom Rayner. Tom Rayner is the CEO and founder of a Christian organization called Church Answers. It's actually an online community that provides resources for church leaders to equip them to help them grow healthy churches. And in his article, he highlights his concern, and that is the declining health in many churches, the declining spiritual health in many churches. In fact, in the context where he lives and works, between six to 10,000 churches in the United States are dying or will close each year. That means around one to 200 churches will close this week south of the border according to the research that he has done. And he notes that the pace of the statistic will only accelerate unless congregations make some dramatic changes. He warns church leaders, hear me well, for many of your churches the choice is simple. You either change or you die. Now, we know from reading scripture, the Bible teaches us that the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, will never die. Jesus declared that in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is Mr. Rayner referring to then? Yes, the church of Christ will never die, but that does not mean that individual congregations won't die. So here we are today. We're gathered together as one of many Bible-believing evangelical churches all over the world that make up the church of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace and the faithful obedience, 
of our brothers and sisters who came before us since Calvary opened its doors in 1928, you and I and our families continue to benefit from being a part of this local congregation. Amen? But the question we must now ask of ourselves as the individuals and as families who make up the current congregation known as Calvary Baptist Church is this. What is our personal responsibility going forward? Not only that, what role does God expect each of us to play in ensuring that Calvary remains a healthy, vibrant, influential church for the kingdom of God? A congregation that will not die, but rather continues to have an impact for the kingdom of God, both now and in the generations to come. And that is the critical question I want us each individually to reflect on this morning. What is my personal responsibility? And to help us answer that question, we'll take a look into the church of the Thessalonians mentioned in the Bible. And in particular, we'll take a look at how the Apostle Paul interacted with them. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, where we'll spend some time this morning looking at sections from both chapter 1 and chapter 2. Before we read, just to give you some background, before Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Thessalonica, he and his traveling companion Silas and Timothy had visited this city before. And when they visited, they brought with them the message about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And according to the scriptures, many people became believers as a result of their first visit. Look with me in the scriptures, chapter 1, where we'll begin in verse 2 and read through 6. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And in this situation, just like in most situations, when God begins to change lives and when God begins to transform communities for the better, we know that opposition is going to heat up. And that is exactly what happened in Thessalonica with Paul and Silas when they came. In fact, a riot broke out. And Paul and Silas were accused of defying Caesar's decrees by saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. So the two of them had to flee, narrowly escaping with their lives. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. So after being separated from the believers in Thessalonica for a little while, Paul began to be concerned for them. He began to feel concerned for them in terms of whether they would stick to the faith in light of the opposition that they were facing. So like any good leader... He delegated someone to go and check up on them. He sent Timothy to check in on the believers and to encourage them. And when Timothy returned to Paul, he was pleased to report that the Thessalonians had remained faithful. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. 
their congregation had not died. In fact, quite the opposite had happened. It actually had grown since Paul and Silas had left them, and their influence had expanded. Listen to Paul's account of their influence and the health and the impact of this church based on Timothy's report. Go with me back to chapter 1 and beginning reading in verse 7 through 10. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So as one author correctly put it, they had become third generation mimics of Christ. Christ had set the example. Paul then followed Christ's example, and now they themselves, the Thessalonians, had become third-generation mimics of Christ. And he commended them. You are a model believer. You left your mark on others. The Lord's message rang out from you. It reverberated to those around you. Wherever the Thessalonians went, they shared the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ that Paul had obediently, obediently shared with them, and now they, in turn, were sharing what they had received, sharing the wealth. And their obedience to share what they had received resulted in not only a local outreach within Thessalonica, but it had also included a national outreach into Macedonia and Achaia, the two provinces that comprised Greece at that time, and even an international outreach to regions beyond. They had become a vibrant, disciple-making church. Exactly the type of church, by God's grace, that Tom Rayner and his ministry are equipping church leaders to grow. So what was the difference? This week, 100 to 200 churches potentially were closed in the States. But then you read this story of this church in Thessalonica. What made the difference? What do the Thessalonians have that unfortunately too many churches seem to be lacking today? I believe it is this. They had been properly discipled and in turn were properly discipling one another. They had been properly discipled and in turn continued to properly disciple one another. Remember earlier in the service I asked each of us to reflect on this question. What is my personal responsibility to those who sit with me in this building this morning. You see, Paul and his interactions with the Thessalonians demonstrated in both his attitude and his behavior that he clearly understood what his responsibility was, and that was to disciple them, to teach them not only through word, but also through his actions what it meant to follow Jesus. He shared with them the spiritual wealth he had received by grace, and as a result, he lived out several key discipleship essentials as he was with them. And then they, in turn, imitated these essentials. And then empowered by the Holy Spirit, they became an effective, influential, reproducing, disciple-making church. So I want you to look with me in chapter 2, where we'll read verses 1 to 12. And this morning, we'll identify the discipleship essentials Paul modeled. And I believe, by faith, 
that like the Thessalonians, if we imitate these essentials, if we apply these to our lives individually and as a congregation, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we too will continue to enjoy spiritual growth and increased kingdom influence. So let's read through these 12 verses and identify those key discipleship essentials. Chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. So what will it require of us to be obedient to sharing the wealth, the richness of the gospel that we have received. There's five essentials that we're going to take a quick look at this morning. And what it will require of us in order to share the wealth that we have received is total reliance on God. Total reliance on God, which will be evident or exhibited through our obedience. In verse 2, Paul and Silas refer to previous persecution that they had received. You see, the treatment they received in Thessalonica was not the first time they had endured such opposition for sharing the wealth of the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, you can read of their experience in Philippi, where before coming to Thessalonica, they had suffered physical beatings. They were incarcerated. They were illegally punished in spite of their Roman citizenship for sharing the gospel. But I love what Paul says in verse 2, but... Paul says, in spite of what happened to us in Philippi, with the help of God, we dared to share the gospel of God with you. We courageously took the risk. We showed boldness in God, not in ourselves. With the help of God, we dared to share the gospel of God with you. You see, brothers and sisters, in our desire to grow as individual disciples, and become more like Christ as we've been learning over the past couple weeks. Putting off the old self. Putting on the new self. Making sure every morning we get up and we armor ourselves. And in our desire corporately as a church to see Calvary continue to grow as a vibrant disciple-making church. Will require of us to never, never, never forget where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That is why he said at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you. Total reliance on God is what is going to be required. 
And the evidence that we believe that in our mind and in our heart will be an increased obedience individually and corporately towards actions that glorify and please God, as was the case with Paul. Because we were totally reliant on God, the evidence was we dared to tell you the gospel. We were willing to courageously take the risk in the face of strong opposition. So the question I have for myself and for you this morning, what is preventing you, what is preventing me, what is preventing us as a church from boldly sharing the gospel? What fears do we need to overcome with the help of God in order to share the wealth? Secondly, in order to share the wealth will require of us understanding the significance of our identity and the significance of our responsibility. We will see this in chapter 2, verse 4. There the Apostle Paul says, we speak as those, listen to these two things, those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We speak as those approved by God, that's our identity, okay, and our responsibility, we have been entrusted with the gospel. You see, after Paul fled with Silas, false teachers had come into the church to try and discredit Paul's ministry by making false accusations of him. That is why when we read those verses, you'll see Paul contrasts his attitudes and his behavior with those of the false teachers. Verse 3, he says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, this is why we came to you. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Have you ever been entrusted with something and felt the weight of that responsibility? I'm sure all of us have. I can, as I was thinking this week, I was like, when did I ever feel the weight of being held responsible and trusted with something? And my memory went back to the end of my grade nine year in high school. I was in Nairobi, Kenya, and my sister was going to be getting married in the States. And I was entrusted with the responsibility to carry from Nairobi, Kenya to the States in a transparent plastic box an iced pink orchid. That's right. Strapping high school athlete traveling on KLM Airlines carrying this little box, an orchid. But it was a beautiful orchid. It was iced by one of our personal family friends. It was all icing, and that was going to be the top of her wedding cake. And they entrusted me with carrying that safely from Nairobi all the way to Pennsylvania. But by God's grace, it made it. And why would I be willing to do that? Why would I be willing to courageously take the risk as a high school male to carry a pink iced orchid all the way across the ocean? Because it was important to my sister, and I love my sister. That's why. You see, in Acts chapter 9, you can read about where Paul, formerly Saul, was approved by God. After his conversion, the scripture says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. You see, the significance of his identity was grounded in the fact that he had been chosen. He was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Christ personally chose him and commissioned him for service. That's why Paul identifies himself in Romans 1.1 as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You see, Paul not only recognized his total reliance on God in sharing the wealth, but he also recognized the significance of his identity. He was approved. And the significance of the responsibility he was commissioned with to be entrusted with the gospel. And when you understand that, what that does for us is it keeps us humble. 
It keeps us humble. It helps to keep our egos in check. We did nothing to be approved. We did nothing to be entrusted. He was simply a recipient of those by God's grace. Listen closely. If you are here this morning, and like Paul, God has by his grace orchestrated the events of your life so that at some point you heard the message about Jesus, then God gave you the gift of faith to respond to what you had heard, and you declared with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I do believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you are saved. You have been chosen. You have been approved by God through the righteousness of Christ. And you have also been entrusted. I have also been entrusted with the gospel. And that is a weighty responsibility. The gospel, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And just so you understand that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have also been approved and entrusted with the gospel, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, where we will read chapter 17, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. Listen to what it says closely so that you understand the significance of the responsibility you have been given and I have been given. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's our identity. The new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God. We are chosen, we are approved, we are entrusted, it's all from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and what does it say? Gave the pastors the ministry of reconciliation. Gave the deacons, they're included, no, gave us. Those who are in Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the gospel, that Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to you and to me the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, Therefore we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. If by God's grace you are a son and a daughter of God, you have been chosen, you have been approved, and you have been entrusted with the gospel. That's an incredible responsibility. William Barclay says, every Christian stands as a link between two generations. And so the evidence that we truly understand the significance of our identity in Christ and the significance of our responsibility as disciple makers, as gospel carriers, will be an increased willingness individually and corporately to obediently share with others the good news that we have received. And this is all from God. Therefore, it should be done in humility. That's what Paul demonstrated. Look at what he said in verses 4 to 6. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. I love a quote I read this week in a book I'm reading called Learning to Lead Like Jesus. And in there, the author says, humble people leave behind residue of God, not themselves. Understand the importance of your identity as chosen and approved and entrusted with the gospel. 
So the question I ask myself, the question we need to ask each other is, what is Christ's return on investment in us going to be related to his commission to make disciples? In order to share the wealth, thirdly, we are going to need to have a genuine love for the family of God, a genuine love for each other. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Paul likens his affection for them to the love shown by a nursing mother towards her children. A nursing mother is literally sharing her life with her child so that that child will grow and that that child will become strong. And Paul says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. And please note how critical having a genuine love for one another is in terms of us fulfilling our responsibility to make disciples. Look what Paul says in verse 8. Because we loved you so much. Do you see how critical having a genuine love for one another is? Because I love you so much. Because you love me so much. Paul says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted. When was the last time you were delighted to share the gospel and your life with a brother and sister in our congregation? Delighted. Not out of chore. I wish we didn't have to go tonight. No, no, no. I'm delighted because I love, I can see someone from my DC group, I love Martin Vander Hayden so much that I'm delighted to meet with him so I can share with him the gospel. And I trust that he'll be delighted to share with me the gospel. Because we loved you so much, it's critical. Genuine love and disciple making is a, has to be accompanied by action. It is the motivation behind our actions, the love that we have from Christ in us for one another. And nowhere is this truth more clearly seen than in John 3.16. Amen? For God so loved the world. There you go. There's that genuine love. What was the action? That he gave his one and only son. He loved, he gave. We loved you so much we were delighted to share with you, Paul says. Genuine love and disciple-making is accompanied by action, but not only that, it's accompanied and grows best in the context of relationship. Sharing does not always require a close relationship with another person. Would you agree? A couple of weeks ago, many of you, because of the love you have inside of you from Christ, shared the love of Christ, shared the wealth that you've been given in Christ with children in third world countries that you don't have a relationship and you'll never meet by filling a Samaritan's box, Christmas, Christmas box, shoebox. But you shared because the love is there. But you don't have a close relationship with those kids. And can I just say how encouraging it was? Two weeks ago, I got to, sh I got to share at our Wednesday night ministry for people with challenges and disabilities. And I got to share with them. And that night was the Christmas shoebox night. And praise God, there was one lady who's a part of our church and she's a part of the Five Alive ministry, on her own, over the last year, prepped 45 boxes to be shipped to kids in the third world. And I asked her, I said, what made you do this? And she said, the love of God. So simple, but so profound, that the action caused her over this past year to put together 45 boxes to share. But it's what Paul had said next and what he demonstrated next that is where, unfortunately, I believe many congregations fall short in demonstrating genuine love for one another. And this is what he said. Not only were we delighted to share with you the gospel of God, but our lives as well. 
Not only the gospel, but our lives as well. That kind of genuine love for each other means, in the words of our speaker last week at the Biblical Hope Seminar, I loved what he said. It means that kind of genuine love for one another doesn't mean that we're just going to dispense Scripture to one another. No, we're going to minister Scripture to one another in the context of relationships. That's genuine love for each other. Ministering the scriptures to one another in the context of relationships. That is why being in a discipling community is so critical and beneficial, not only to our own growth as an individual, but to the health of our church. Because it provides a relational environment where we not only spur one another on to apply the truths of the gospel, but we get the opportunity to share our lives with each other. Can I just say how encouraged I am by the fruit of what's happening in our discipling communities. More and more I'm getting stories, I'm getting emails, I'm getting photos of people sharing their lives with one another outside of the meeting time. You see, they're not only sharing the gospel, but now they're sharing their lives with one another. One story I heard this week that just warmed my heart as a pastor was our dear brother Murray Lewin, as you heard in the prayer, God called him home last night. But Pastor Mark went to visit him on Friday, and when he got there, Pastor Mark's word to me were, there was nowhere for me to do ministry, because there was so many people from the church, and they're loving and caring on Murray and his wife, Ferry. And isn't that the way it should be? Paul and Silas left, the church grew. Pastor Mark, our care pastor, went to the hospital, and what he found was brothers and sisters showing genuine love for a brother and sister, and they were there visiting. Pastor Mark did say, don't get too good at it, though, because he needs a job. All right? But he was so encouraged, and I thought, that's it. That's it. Genuine love. In the routine, daily challenges we face in life, being there for one another, sharing our lives with each other. As we head into Christmas, you know you're going to run into distant relatives. Correct? I'm sure all of you can recall that famous distant aunt. I have one of them who always gives you a big kiss on the cheek and then grabs your cheeks and tells you what she remembers of you since you were in grade three all the way up, all right? I have the kissing aunt as a distant relative. Okay, these are people that we don't necessarily see too often or make a lot of contact with, but we understand that's the reality in our biological families. But can I encourage us this morning, in this family, in this local representation of God's family, can we please commit to the responsibility to making sure that there are fewer and fewer distant relatives within this family. Brothers and sisters. And that's going to require us to be in relationship with one another. That's why it's so critical. Genuine disciple-making love has to have actions. Genuine disciple-making love grows best in the context of relationship. So the question I have for myself and the question I have for you is, do my choices, do your choices, how, your priorities, how you use your time, your talent, your treasure, do they reflect a genuine love for those sitting around you in the auditorium this morning? Or am I a distant relative? Fourthly, sharing the wealth will require of us to live lives that are above reproach. Exhibiting godly character. We see that in chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Lives that were lived above reproach. Although living above reproach is a character qualification listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, for pastors, I agree with other biblical scholars who say, and I quote, 
Although our qualification for pastor, it is actually God's calling on all Christians to live above reproach. Yes, as pastors, we absolutely should be setting the example. As deacons, these men should be setting the example of what it looks like and exemplify what it looks like to live above reproach. But all Christians are to display this trait, this discipleship essential, living above reproach. And Paul understood that. He knew he was to set the example for the Thessalonians to follow. And if being above reproach was part of that example, it was required of them as it is required of us today. So what does it mean to live above reproach? It means living lives that are consistent with our reputation so that the reputation stays credible. Living lives that are consistent and that our reputation is then credible. I like how author Tim Chalice describes it this way. You are an example worth following. I am an example worth following. And you do not make the gospel look fake by teaching one thing while doing another. That's what it means to live above reproach. Consistent. So your reputation is credible. And Paul, as we read that, you could hear in his communication to the church there, he deliberately avoided behavior that might lead people to doubt or suspect the integrity of the message he was sharing. That is why it is so vital that we share our lives with each other. Being in relationship is so critical because it will help us to keep one another in check. It will help us to keep each other accountable. It will guard our credibility as those who have been entrusted with the gospel. So the question I have for myself and for you is, is the life I live in Christ worth following? Is the life you live in Christ worth following? And finally, sharing the wealth will require of us wanting the best for each other. Wanting the best for each other in verses 11 and 12. In 11, he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. As fathers, our role is supposed to be to encourage, to comfort, and to positively urge our children on. And this is how Paul describes what he did for the Thessalonians, who were actually his children in the faith. And what is the best that he wanted for the Thessalonians? Look with me in verse 12. That we should also want for one another, that they would live lives worthy of God. That they would live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Live lives in our attitudes and in our behaviors that reflect the character and bring honor to the one who chose and entrusted us with the gospel. Don't you think that would be our reasonable response to God who on his own initiative called us into his kingdom and glory and the richness that we experience together? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we must live lives, brothers and sisters, that are totally reliant on God, that understand the significance of our identity and the significance of our responsibility, that have a genuine love for one another, that we're willing to share our lives with one another. Lives that are lived above reproach and lives that want the best for each other. Having the right attitude and the right behavior is critical to accomplishing the mission we have been entrusted with to go and make disciples. Presenting everyone fully mature in Christ. Can I just say, that starts in here as a family. Yes, evangelism and discipleship, you can't separate them. Evangelism is part of the discipleship process. And we learned a few weeks ago when Pastor Nick preached that we are to go and witness. But unfortunately, too many times I think we limit our definition of discipleship to simply conversion. Brothers and sisters, we are to continue to teach each other to obey the commands of Christ until he returns or he takes us home. 
Discipleship starts in here with each other, and that requires us to be in relationship with one another. Our effectiveness to be a vibrant, disciple-making church, like the Church of the Thessalonians, will be directly related to how serious we take our responsibility to demonstrate these key discipleship essentials with one another in community. Sharing the wealth, it is our responsibility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. Father, thank you for Christ who set the example. And then for people like Paul who followed. And then what Paul had received, he set the example. The Thessalonians received and they set the example. And on and on, people have shared the wealth obediently and faithfully that they have received from you. And we in this room today are benefactors of the discipleship process. Thank you for the faithfulness of those who have gone ahead of us. And now, God, as we reflect on the question, what is our responsibility? Thank you that through Paul's life, we've been able to glean some practical application about what is required of us to ensure that we as individuals and we as a church continue this awesome responsibility of making disciples. And thank you that you are our help and we will rely on you and we will give you all the praise and all the glory for the results. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.